Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Jeff Sparrow, until recently one of Triple R's breakfast team, has come back home to Triple R to speak about one of the projects that stole him away. His new book is out now. It's called Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre. And we're so pleased to have you in studio, Jeff. Oh, Hello. It's lovely to be here. We miss you. Yes, I weighed up breakfasters on one hand, fascism on the other. Came down on fascism. <laughs> Maybe that was the wrong choice. It's a no-brainer. That's, really wasn't. <laughs> that's why I'm back. Well, I mean, the, the massacre, the Christchurch massacre was um, just over eight months ago, Friday, 15th of March, during Friday prayers. And, um, and here's your book. Was it really important to you to, to turn this project around as quickly as you have, Jeff? Yes. Um, gosh, is, was it as recently? Is that a, gosh, this has been a long and terrible year in all sorts of ways, hasn't it? Yeah, yes. Um, I thought very quickly after that incident that this was going to be um, a very important incident and that it was going to have ongoing repercussions. And already since... Christchurch, we've now seen four, possibly five terrorist incidents that have been direct, directly inspired, self-consciously imitative um, following on from Christchurch. So one of the points I try to make in the book is that this was not accidental. This was, in fact, one of the intended outcomes by the perpetrator was to do something that would be imitated all over the world. And in fact, that strategy is working quite well, which is why I thought it was important to write about it, to try to outline what that strategy is so we can take action against it. And the need to understand exactly sort of what happened in Christchurch and the broader ramifications is a really important thing to get our heads around. But there's a lot of sensitivities around looking into that specific event um, and the perpetrator. You refer to the perpetrator as Person X in this book, taking some direction from New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in not naming him. Uh, and also the manifesto itself is actually banned in uh, New Zealand. So how difficult was was it, I guess, for you to navigate those sensitivities when writing on, on this case in particular? Yes. So when the perpetrator first appeared in custody after the massacre, he gave an okay symbol through his manacled handcuffs. And that was perceived by his supporters around the world as a white power symbol. You know, and recently in Melbourne with the, after the IMARC protest, there was a discussion about one of the cops involved with that using the, the similar, a similar symbol. But of course, that symbol was taken over by the far right initially as a troll, initially as a way of trying to prank the left. So the idea was we will say this is a white power symbol, left-wingers will carry on about it, then we'll be able to say, look at you people, you see fascism everywhere. Then, of course, this troll became taken up by right-wingers themselves. And so you have this situation where a symbol that was adopted as a joke is being used by someone who's just killed 51 people. And I mention that because I think it says something about the strange ambiguities of online fascism and the difficulty of untangling what it actually means. And that's why it seemed to me that despite the sensitivities around this incident, actually we needed to discuss it. 
that we, in fact, one of the problems had been not that the media ha- uh, has been talking about fascism too much, but the media hasn't been talking about fascism enough. So we had all sorts of incidents where some well-known fascist activists in Australia were being, you know, interviewed on radio and TV by people who either didn't know who they were and what they represented or certainly didn't convey that to the audience. So that's why I thought that it was important to, 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 to write about this subject despite the sensitivities. And then there was the issue about how best to do it because obviously after something like this that you know you have a responsibility to all the many people whose lives have been harmed by this person. And in the original manuscript I did use the perpetrator's name um, because I was making an argument, okay, we need to discuss this thing. And the reaction from some of the readers was so strong, I thought, okay, why then put an obstacle in front of people, you know, that, that might prevent them from um, taking in this argument? So I, it, it was something that I had to negotiate. That's the short answer after that long-winded answer. Oh, yeah, and I think, I mean, I think you've given a really good explanation of the, I suppose, where when thinking about your book, and thank you for writing such a succinct book, too um, makes it really accessible. But this idea of you know, speaking about the perpetrator of person X, which also um, goes to that idea of imitation as well, that this is a person X, it could be a person Y, and yes. unfortunately, um, and then that we should explore the ideology and the ecosystem from which such persons come from. Um, and I think, you know, you've just gone there about explaining the difference, but I think what you also do well, and I, I did I did actually laugh when you brought up Rick Mayle's uh, Vivian character <laughs> from The Young Ones because, you know, that character saw fascists everywhere. Yes. Uh, anyone that didn't agree with him. Um, but you're very specific about definitions of fascists, like Donald Trump, not a fascist. Pauline Hanson, not a fascist. What is it that you see as fascism, like the new fascism that we're yes. dealing with? So one of the interesting things about this terrible crime is the perpetrator says in his manifesto, I am a fascist. And despite and he he make, he, he says, oh, well, journalists will love that, you know, because they're always calling people fascists, but I actually am a fascist. And despite that, it's been interesting that, you know, a lot of the commentary um, – and the discussion about journalists are actually really reluctant to use the F word. So they'll talk about him as an extremist or as a radical, but they won't call him a fascist, even though he says openly and repeatedly, I am a fascist. And I think one of the reasons is, as you say, that for a lot of people, fascism is just a boo word. Fascism is fascism refers to someone who's probably right wing that you don't like. They're um, a fascist. Whereas the perpetrator makes it clear he is using this in a very technical sense he's very conscious of the history of fascism in the 20s and the 30s and in particular he refers to sir oswald mosley um the leader of the british union of fascists as his main inspiration and it's a really interesting comparison because of course a lot of people forget that even in the 20s and the 30s fascism was an international phenomenon so there were italian fascists and there were german fascists and they were the most famous but there were fascist movements all over the world including in australia And the British Union of Fascists tried to implement the ideas of Mussolini and Hitler in a British context. So to to go back to your question, what were those ideas? Well, fascism is a, a, a movement that generally manifests in times of political and economic 
crisis. It generally appeals to people in the classical middle classes, so, you know, people between the two major classes, so, you know, shopkeepers, professionals, lawyers, dentists, people like that. It takes their fear of falling out of their position of relative privilege into the masses and turns that into anger against people below them. But it also appeals to their sense that those at the big end of town, big business, are threatening their position as well. So fascism has this strange kind of double-edged um, aspect to it. It's simultaneously um, reactionary, um, but it also has a kind of revolutionary um, component to it, this sense that the whole, entire society has to be made over into this new organic hierarchy where the little man will get his just you know, privilege and it resolves the contradictions between these two aspects of it through two ways. One is through racism. So classically, if you think of um, the National Socialists, one of the ways that they were able to convince people that, um, you know, um, beating up Jewish families in the ghettos was somehow this, you know, brave and heroic thing to do was this, the racist ideology of anti-Semitism allowed them to say they might look like they're impoverished working class people, but they're actually the secret rulers of the world. So racism is really crucial to fascism. And the other key component is um, a, a commitment to um, regenerative violence, to a sense that violence is not just a means to an end, but it, it's an end in itself. And it's through violence that both the individual and the society will be redeemed in some sort of way. And so when you think about the Pauline Hansons and the, the Donald Trumps, they might be racist, they might put forward um, conspiratorial theories that often cross over with genuine fascists, but they don't have that sort of commitment to militarised violence that, that the genuine fascists did. And if you think of the Christchurch perpetrator, one of the key um, aspects of his fascism was his willingness to kill 51 people. And that's a key component of fascism, that commitment to violence. We're speaking with Jeff Sparrow all about his brand new book, Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre. And I think it's it's kind of important to uh, talk a little bit about those connections between what you uh, you know term uh, right-wing populists or outsider anti-elitist in this book and uh, fascism in the way that it's um, you know uh, very much enlivened through the types of actions um, of person x in Christchurch you write that anti-muslim sentiment in particular in the wake of 9-11 has provided kind of a cover for the emergence of such people and ideologies as person x to arise can you talk a bit about that yeah so after world war ii the the horrors of the holocaust meant that anti-semitism was no longer publicly acceptable in the way that it had been in the 20s and 30s and people forget that um you know it was quite common in a newspaper of that time to find people talking disparagingly about jewish people after the second world war that was no longer the no longer the case and so throughout the um 20th century most attempts to reform any kind of serious fascist movement it was one of the problems that they had that anti-semitism and to an extent any kind of racism was no longer publicly palatable in the way that it it once had been after 9-11 and the war on terror 
One of the things the war on terror did was it legitimised in the public sphere an Islamophobia that replicated all the traditional tropes of classical anti-Semitism. So if you think of the ways that the traditional anti-Semite would talk about the Jew, that in terms of the particular clothing, in terms of particular diets, in terms of you know Jewish people living in, in particular areas or having connections with political violence, all of those tropes were were reapplied to the figure of the Muslim. But where anti-Semitism remained unpalatable, you know, if you came out and publicly used anti-Semitism in a mainstream newspaper, you would probably lose your job, and rightfully so. After 9-11, you know, if you were writing an anti-Muslim column, you would get a promotion and, you know, a regular gig at the Telegraph or, or, or whatever. So it was publicly palatable, and that made things much easier for... Um, for genuine fascists, as did the new anxiety about borders that happened after 9-11 as well. So in the course of the war on terror, a xenophobic fear of refugees became normalised as well. And so we got the rise of figures like Pauline Hanson and Donald Trump, who, while not being fascists themselves, popularised and normalised the kinds of ideas that fascists were traditionally associated with. So in, in many ways, after 2000, the, um, the, the political environment for genuine fascism was much more sympathetic than it had been in the 20th century. And we're now seeing, we're now reaping the, the fruits of that, I guess. Do you feel like we've been very slow to kind of understand the ways in which Islamophobia has almost become the new anti-Semitism? I mean, I know you've written about this in the past. Have you had people kind of challenge you on that point? All the time, mm. all the time. I mean, you, you know, there'll be somebody like frantically tweeting even as they listen to this to saying, you know, well, you know, how can I be a racist if, if um, you know, um, I'm against uh, Muslims because Islam is not a race? You know, you get this over and over again. People think it's this real, you know, knockdown argument but of course there is no such thing as a race races are pr produced by racism and so you know one of the, the the earliest kinds of racism in in the western world was anti-irish racism which you know like from our perspective makes no sense at all you you generally physically can't distinguish someone from ireland from someone from england but race is race is a concept is produced by racist discourse and so islamophobia has produced this racialized figure of the muslim which now haunts the western imagination and you know even after um after the christchurch massacre there was a brief moment where various people including scott morrison who if you remember was a you know, according to a bunch of journalists, had raised in a, in cabinet the the idea that the Liberal Party should campaign directly um, by appealing to anti-Muslim sentiment. And after the Christchurch massacre, he pulled back from that and claimed that he'd never said it or or whatever. But so the reaction to Christchurch was initially to for a certain sort of pulling back from that. But I think since then, you know, people can still get away with saying stuff about the Muslim, that they would never get away with saying things about the Jew, even though the, the, you know, the, the effect of the discourse is essentially the same. One um, area of your book, Jeff, that I really spent a lot of time reading was around eco-fascism. And I, I actually didn't realise that some of the, the conversation, I suppose even some of the commentary and, and fear coming out of the left around climate change, for instance, is seen quite differently when you're a fascist can you talk about can you talk about that i mean where climate change but also environmentalism is when you're 
and yeah, fascist. Yeah, so it, it wasn't just the Christchurch perpetrator as well. The, 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 the guy who murdered those people in El Paso who was directly inspired by the Christchurch um, murderer and, and cited his um, manifesto also explained what he was doing in terms of environmentalism. He said that, you know, our lifestyle is unsustainable. There are too many people in America. We need to get rid of, you know, immigrants and this is what I'm going to do. So there's two ways of coming at Ecofascism, because it sounds really counterintuitive. To most people, it's almost oxymoronic. You've got fascists on the one hand, you've got environmentalists on the other. They have nothing in common. And to be honest, that is um, mostly the case. You know, most environmentalists you, you run into are committed to social justice. Most fascists you run into are committed to violence. There is no common ground. But if you dig down, there's a couple of ways of sort of seeing how ecofascism might become a real tendency in the future. Because at the moment, you can find it online. There are ecofascists, but it's not a huge, you know, there, some of the um, racial populist groups in Europe are beginning to, to, to use it. So Marine Le Pen's, um, the, her, her group, the National Front in France, are now making climate change part of their, um, their platform. The way they're arguing for climate change, they're saying, well, you know, climate change is going to lead to um, climate refugees. Um, there's going to be refugees from all over the world coming to the wealthy countries. That's why we need to intensify our borders and border policing and so on and so forth. Well, if you think about the Australian context, um, if, as a lot of the climate scientists are saying, that in the immediate future we have 100 million climate refugees and many of them... Um, end up on Australian shores, what will be the mainstream reaction to that? You know, we've seen this 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 debate about refugees over the recent years and the way that the government has responded to the tiny number of refugees who have come to Australia. You begin to get an inkling. Well, there are big questions. And, I, I mean, how do you see that melding and, uh, with the climate emergency? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a really interesting question as as. as well, I mean, usually the climate emergency slogan that's being put forward by Extinction Rebellion is being put forward simply that people just want the government to take climate change seriously. But, of course, it is the sort of slogan you have to be a little bit careful with because a declaration of an emergency often means things like a suspension of the rule of law. It means extra security powers. It means, you know, the army taking control of things. And you can see a situation where, well, increasingly the Australian government is moving from a position of denying climate change or effectively denying it to a position of saying climate change is inevitable and we can't do anything about it. And once they go to that position, well... I think we'll start to see something, not quite eco-fascism, but a kind of climate authoritarianism, which says the way we need to respond to climate change is to create more borders, is to start turnbacks of, you know, um, uh, of climate refugees. But also we need to do practical things to help farmers and anybody who wants to talk about things like trying to stop climate emissions is distracting from the practical things that we're trying to do and are thus the enemy. You see what I mean? So you can see how this sort of right-wing climate discourse might begin to challenge the kind of left-wing climate um, discourse. And I think it's I mean, I, in, in some ways, that's kind of the takeaway from the book. I think that unless progressives start to come up with solutions to these things, there are all sorts of terrible people in the wings who will step forward with their own solutions. And, you know, in her new book, um, Naomi Klein talks about climate barbarism. 
Well, the Christchurch massacre is one of the examples that she uses of what climate barbarism might look like, you know, in terms of scapegoating and violence and fascism. Jeff Sparrows, our guest on The Grapevine, was speaking all about his brand new book, Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre, which is out through Scribe. And it's probably a good point to start to talk about some of the, the solutions or means of addressing the rise of, of individuals who kind of spout fascist beliefs or groups as well. And one of the encouraging things from your book and the argument you make is that fascist groups or a fascist movement has kind of found it difficult to obtain a lot of support on the streets themselves. And mm. Part of the reason for that, you suggest, is uh, counter-protests and, and anti-fascists turning up, you know, often in much, much larger numbers and, and embarrassing and kind of delegitimizing their cause. Do you see that as enough to prevent the spread in, in physical terms and, uh, you know, p- the potential for fascists to congregate in large numbers on the street and potentially gain a foothold in electoral politics? Yeah, that's, that, that, that's, that's a really good Question. So I think in the English-speaking world, particularly in, in Australia and the US, you can see very clearly in 2016 and 2017, the fascists make a move offline into the streets. They did it both here and they did it in America. America, most famously, in the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. And they met, they were massively outnumbered by counter-protests. And even though that event was horrific and a young woman, a counter-protester, Heather Meyer, lost her life, at it in the wake of that protest by a, about a year after um, Charlottesville, it was clear that their attempt to move on to move from the online sphere into the real world had been a, a, catast- a, ca- a catastrophic failure. Almost all of the leaders who'd been involved in Charlottesville were either on the run or they'd lost their positions. The groups were falling apart, and so on and so forth. And in some ways, I think the Christchurch. Um, perpetrator was a response to that, a sort of recognition that wasn't possible at this time for them to come online. So I think that's that shows the importance of those counter-demonstrations and I think it's something to bear in mind the next time we see this happening. At the same time, though, say the situation in, say, continental Europe is quite different where the far right has made far greater inroads into mainstream politics. There are countries in in Europe now, well, Germany is one example, where there are organisations that, gosh, you know, if they're not genuinely fascist, they're very, very close to it, who, who have been able to make those kind of inroads. And so while I think the sort of street protests are important, they're not enough in and of themselves. So in the local context, these people have managed to go off the street, back online, and on, online organising has enabled them to do things like Christchurch and other you know, and other atrocities. So that remains a real problem. And we're still in places like Europe. Um, they've got to the point now where the street demonstrations against them, while still important, are clearly no longer enough because they've gone past that sort of stage. So, you know, while the protests are important, I, I think, you know, um, as I argue in the book, eventually the only way to defeat these people is to offer a better alternative. So this is a movement that comes out of despair. And Christ, this is a moment of despair, isn't it? I mean, when I've been talking about this, one of the things I keep thinking about is a number of people that you run into now who say things like, I've decided not to have kids because, you know, who knows what the future is going to be like. That kind of pessimism about the future that so many people hold creates a space for you know, the sort of nihilistic violence of a, of a fascist movement to kind of build. And so 
Did you need to spend much time on 8chan and Gab and to write this book? Yes. So, uh, what well, I mean, tell us about that, but also is that the sort of environment you're thinking that some of these more positive messages will start to infiltrate? Uh, I mean, these places are sewers, right? So... Yeah. Um, so, so, so the the thing about four chan, well, the thing about eight chan, eight chan developed out of four chan, and four chan very much created the kind of so many of the cultural norms of the internet. So, on the one hand, it was always a sewer. On the other hand, many of the kind of you know the idea of of a meme, for instance, comes out of four chan. Many of the kind of um, ways that people interact out of, out of out online came out of that that environment. Now, though, 8chan in particular, I mean, insofar as it still exists, is is dominated by, you know, every time one of these massacres happens, there will be, a you know, a congregation of these people talking about the massacre as if it were a video game, assigning scores to the perpetrator, talking about how they can make sure that the next massacre will be more... Interesting, too, that there has been a, a, apparently a video game produced where you can imitate... The, the Christchurch killer, which has been banned in New Zealand, I understand, but that sort of thing's happening as well. Yes, and that's actually a really interesting example of, of the, the difficulties with dealing with this because that was produced consciously as a troll. So um, there were people on Gab talking about this video game and urging other people to report it to the media precisely because of they, knew, they knew that the outrage that it would kind of create. So that sort of online environment is so saturated with hyper irony that it's so difficult to tell what's serious and what's not serious or more exactly things are simultaneously serious and not serious at the same time a bit like that okay gesture that i was talking about it's on the one hand it's a joke on the other hand it's a joke being used by someone who's just killed 51 people so um so it goes, goes back to one of the earlier points that we're trying to make that it's much more difficult to stop the kinds of um, online massacres that were inspired by Christchurch. The whole point of this as a strategy for the fascist right was that individual people can come out of their bedroom with a with a weapon and do these things, and it's very very difficult to 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 stop them because they're not people with previous records. They've come from nowhere. One of the things we can do, though, is we can try to educate people a bit more about that culture, which is why I think this sort of attitude that a lot of journalists have, that we shouldn't talk about it, is so so counterproductive. You know, if we don't talk about it, if we don't try to explain these kind of ideas, how do you know if your kids are, you know, are becoming interested? And how do we know um, if if these people are trying to troll us or if they're not. so And how would we know that? I don't think you've hardly used a a woman's name in this book. I mean, it seems to be a very male-dominated area. I don't know if that's just an observation. I don't think you make the point um, necessarily in the book. But by by looking and going into the sewers, you can kind of see... Look, there. I think that's a really interesting and um, good point. Uh, one of the, the, the arguments I try to make in in, in in the book is when the Christchurch perpetrator realised that they couldn't organise successfully offline and decided to start trying to recruit people online to, con- to conduct terror attacks, um, he tried to politicise the already existing tendency 
um, towards uh, gun massacres, particularly in the United States, knowing that for, that for the kind of people who are on 8chan and already sympathetic to far-right ideas found these gun massacres, even when they were apolitical, found them compelling. And part of that to do... part I mean... There's a really interesting kind of debate about why it is that gun massacres that were previously unknown throughout the 20th century that almost never happened after about 1960 start to happen with increasing frequency and increasing violence. And I think one of the arguments you can make is that for a certain kind of young man in particular who feels disempowered and alienated, there's an, there's an emotional attraction to the idea of extreme violence, that extreme violence seems a way of asserting control over a situation where you have no control, that for a few minutes while you have a gun, you're the centre of everyone's attention, you're the one who's shaping the action, you're the main character, not the NPC. It goes back to your point, though, it's a very masculine experience. I I think women experience, are socialised to experience um, disempowerment and alienation in a different way. To, to men, men will feel this as a sort of an assault on their fundamental masculine right to control. And for those men, the notion that you have to reassert your control in this violent way is very powerful. And so it's vanishingly rare to find women committing these um, gun massacres. Um, whether they're political or not, it's always these young men. It's interesting to be reading this book as a follow-up to your previous um, trigger warnings, uh, political correctness and the rise of the right, because you trace uh, kind of the evolution of the rise of the right wing um, over the past decades and also challenges to progressive politics and and the way that's been articulated and experienced as well. But I guess reflecting on some of the challenges um, articulated there and your experience of writing this book, which takes, you know, as its explicit focus, um, the very kind of you know, far-right fascist wing of right-wing politics. Did this feel like a a different sort of book to be writing, one that, for example, you might need to be more wary of the response? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there are obvious challenges involved in writing about identity politics and and political correctness because it's such a a fraught subject and one one about which people feel very strongly but um, the hesitation about talking about that subject is more to do with you might, I don't know, say something controversial and get a backlash from people who would otherwise be your allies. The The concern about writing about these people is that they are um, uh, very violent and... Um, and um, dangerous people. I mean, no, no, you know. So, 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 one of the reasons why I wanted to write it is, I think that um, the whole point of the Christchurch massacre, or one of the points of it, was to inspire a series of imitative massacres that would um, be self-generating and that would have this sort of cascading effect around the world. And we've seen that now. As I said, I think there's been four, possibly five, people who have been directly inspired by this to to commit. Um, mass mass murder or or multiple murders um you know i think it's certain almost certain anyway that we will see more of them that this is not this is not over this is like this is a process that has been set in train and um you know no one can say where the next one will be but one of the reasons I wanted to write about it is it's it, i think it's something that needs to be taken seriously because um as Christchurch demonstrated you don't need to have very much political support to 
cause horrendous amounts of pain and destruction. Now, these people are not on the verge of taking power in many ways. Like, as we were talking about before, this is a movement that's certainly in the real world hasn't been able to generate a real foothold and is kind of struggling for any kind of, you know, um, political success. But you don't need very many people to do horrendous things. And um, so I, I, I think there is a, a real danger out there that needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, and I think you make a very good case for that in this book, Jeff, and thank you for writing it. No. Uh, uh, Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre um, from Jess Sparrow out through Scribe. And thanks for visiting us. Oh, it's not, it's not, we should, it's lovely to be back. We should say for the record, we, we, we don't usually speak as intensely as this. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we, we do have laughs together, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this is a really important book. And, yeah, thanks for bringing oh, Well, thanks for us. giving me the time, guys. Pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. Yes. Uh, I love chickens <laughs> and I love, the, I love the work of Fiona Scott-Norman, who you know is a sometimes presenter here at Triple R, columnist, performer, DJ. She's also produced a beautiful chook book called This Chicken Life and she's here to cluck all about it. And um, mm. thanks for coming in, Fiona. I can even do that for you if you like, Kyle. Yeah, yeah, do. What's your noise? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm chook 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 Ah, uh, there you go. Well, that's if you're calling them. Yeah, that, oh, yeah, it is true. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so uh, full confession, I'm yet to drink the chicken Kool-Aid. I, uh, um, I, Dylan, I'm yet to take the plunge, so people. to speak. I'm, I'm not yet, but I'm open to it. Great. Chicken but, curious. That's right. Exactly. But once you were like me, you were a mere mortal once and it's didn't true. find these, um, these creatures so wondrous. How did you get into chickens? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, look, essentially I was lured um i think when sort of heritage chickens hit the zeitgeist like about 2010 something like that it was a tori spelling was photographed out and about with her pet silky coco in her handbag and on her head and if you've never seen a silky it kind of looks like a cross between um, a 70s fashion model modelling um, this season's fur uh, with a kitten. Uh, extraordinary looking critter. And I was just going, that's a chicken. <laughs> and then once you start falling down the rabbit hole of Googling um, beautiful chickens on the internet, then you're just going, wow. So there's a definite glamour and sexiness to a fun chicken and there's these heritage chooks and also um, there was sort of like an explosion. I, look, I'm basically what I'm saying is I'm susceptible to trends, okay? <laughs> That's what happened. I I realised there's something, there was a, a black hole, a, an explosion, a big bang. There was uh, the... Lovacore, the um, food miles movement, there was worrying about uh, animal welfare. So, you know, we started getting really concerned about free range and um, free range eggs in particular, like caged eggs, like people got really present to the cage mm. industry. Um, there's permaculture has obviously been on the rise, like also reconnecting back to the um, 
soil and to the earth, which of course we become so disconnected with in terms of being on the internet all the time and on our devices. And one of the simplest ways to reconnect is actually through chickens because pretty much everyone can have chooks. Like you don't need much room. And so it seemed very achievable, actually. Mm. And um, and also once you start Googling like, well, what chickens am I going to get? And you start putting feelers out. The chickens come to you. <laughs> well, it's really true. <laughs> and They're everywhere. The, the chicken subculture is huge. There's so many people that have oh. them. And I've had them off and on for, gee, 35 years. So I yeah. had them as a, as a kid. And, you know, the heartbreak of when oh. they get taken by foxes. It's the worst. And, you know, my mum, the first time that happened, mm. had me walking around the neighbourhood looking for them while my dad cleaned up. You know, they might have got out. Oh, bless. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's really – they were silky bantams. And, they, I mean, they're so beautiful. But, I mean, you also focus in on people – I think, like, like me who just love having them in the yard like mm. separate from all of the things you just talked about just having the presence of chickens clucking in the backyard is yep. enough for me to want them yeah well and this is the thing they do um kind of round your home out mm. uh and i and also i mean like I think what we've forgotten is that chickens were domesticated for 4,000 years. And it's only actually in the last, like, three decades that, or four decades that we've, they've disappeared from everyone's backyards. Everyone used to have chickens. It was bog standard um, because they give you eggs, they give you company. It's like that bond is very real. The um, bond between chickens and humans is actually very real. So what's happened is that I think there's been a real bounce because... A lot of people, for all the reasons I've outlined, were going, yes, let's get chickens again. And then you get chickens you because you think, oh, I'll just get a couple of chickens for the eggs. And then within a week you're going, oh, I love my chickens because they just weasel their way into your heart. Um, and then once you've got that bond, then, well, one, you want more chickens because you can and, – and, you know, the council fortunately keeps a lid on it. <laughs> Otherwise we'd all have 100. But they're um, – they're so good, actually. I think, you know, we, they're productive pets. So we're all going, yes, you get eggs. Um, for some people, it's, you know, uh, sustainable and also um, kind meat. For other people, uh, most people, I suppose, inner city people, they're not sort of doing that. They're going more eggs. But then as soon as you and company, and then you realise, oh, they're great company. And then you go, oh, they're hilarious. And you go, oh, they're so watchable. And then they make these great noises and you suddenly realise there's just something about going into the backyard and they're just going, you know, doing their... And they're just getting on with their chicken business. There's always something going on because of the pecking order, the way that they organise themselves. There's always one chicken that's trying to take over the top spot or there's the poor bottom chicken that we all are hot. I know, so much drama. That's Betty so in much our drama. So much drama. So it's basically an ongoing soap opera that you can step into at any time. <laughs> Turn off the TV, head out and watch a chicken through. Hells a bit. yeah. A lot of people call it chicken TV. Yeah. Uh, my partner Greg calls it the aquarium that gives you eggs because they're so char- calming. They just chill you out. And so what about this book? Because I, you know, I imagine there are many, many books about the, you know, the practical steps oh, to so having many. chickens and all that sort of stuff, what you should do, what type you should get. But you describe 
this book as an emotional roadmap, not kind of a practical how-to guide if you're going to go and have chickens. Yes. What did you want to, I guess, achieve by presenting the book in this way? Because it is a really beautiful book with amazing photos that profiles a whole bunch of very different, diverse individuals who, um, for various reasons, have fallen in love with chickens. Yeah. Uh, Well, I wanted to celebrate that. Um, I mean, I didn't write the book. I didn't have the idea for the book for a while. Like I've got a friend who's very much about, you know, she's she's taking, you know, she's a filmmaker and she's going, you've got to do something, but do a chicken book, do a chicken book, make do it like the Blue Day, like pictures of your chickens with, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, funny f- sayings underneath them. And I was going, ah, and it just took a while to work it out because I, I, I just went, that's not right. I mean, for one thing, it's actually, you know, taking photos of chickens is not the easiest thing in the world. My photographer, uh, who I worked with, Alana Rose, she's a photojournalist. She's amazing. We collaborated. We travelled the country together. Mm. But she will attest how hard it is to pin a chicken down for a decent photo because they move really fast. And they always turn away. And just they turn the away. Their heads. And so, but you can, and it's really hard to even get a decent fluffy butt shot too because yeah. it's like, can you just... just Come on, show me your butt. Look, I've tried to do that. It is uh, really impossible. But you did get like a legend involved. Are you going to tell me something about how to do it? Oh, no. I'm just going. But I just wanted to say, of course, because there's a lot of chicken influencers on Instagram. Mm. Um, like chickens are huge on social media because they are just hilarious. Um, but there's a thing on Instagram called Fluffy Butt Friday. So people just upload photographs of their chickens' bottoms because they're just adorable. I've got to rejoin Instagram to get into that. Um, There's also traces of cat butt in there. (laughs) (laughs) Stick better with that one, I think. (laughs) Um, But you you put legends in this book as well, like Meg Miller, and I should stress her name is spelt with a double G. It is. So she's been around for a long time Mm. and knows a thing or two about chickens and, you know, does a lot of lectures and, you know, I've, I've benefited from her advice. But uh, so what is it that she taught you about well, this emotional journey rather than, you know, her job as a, a poultry um, judge, I think she is? Oh, Meg, she's amazing. So I interviewed her and her daughter, Jessamie. So they're a dynasty of chicken people. Um, Jessamie is actually the one who said to me that a house, that a home isn't a home without chickens. Like she won't, she, when she settled down to have kids, she made sure that she had enough garden for chickens because she went you can't not have chickens when you have children it's not right Um, but she grew up with chickens with her mum Meg who um, is an extraordinary woman she's just actually received an OAM for her services to poultry Um, and I guess in terms of the emotional journey the thing about Meg that was interesting is because she is a very pragmatic woman um, she comes. She comes from the world of showing, like the fancy. So she was involved in writing the standards, the Australian standards, which are the ways by which you accrue points on different breeds of chicken when you're showing them. So to win a ribbon, your chooks need to adhere to these standards. And so she brought back several um, heritage breeds from the brink of extinction essentially in Australia because you can't bring you can't bring chickens from outside into Australia it's just not allowed anymore there's been a couple of windows where the biosecurity curtain has been lifted and some some new blood comes in but essentially we've got what we've got um, which is understandable um, so she was very um, 
some breeds were on the verge of dying out, she saved them. But the connection um, kind of like that she gave me was looking after the chickens kind of saved her mental health. So um, when her um, marriage broke down, it was the chickens that got her up in the morning. It was like because she had to go and look after the chickens. And quite a few people uh, in the book cited that is that because you have to look after them, uh, you can't just leave them. They won't look after themselves. It means they get you up and you have to get up in the morning. So if you're depressed um, or suffering from mental illness and you have a tendency to spend a lot of time in, in bed, which as we do when we're not feeling great, the chooks drag you out and then once you're out, you're up, you're out. So um, they have this just really kind of... Uh, and of course, when you get there, they're really pleased to see you. So that's really nice. Mm. I think one of the great things about the mental health benefits of chickens is that they're kind of a perfect pet. One because they give you, you know, they they, they give you eggs. They just they give you that companionship. But if you, um, they they they're not as dependent as dogs. So it's like with a dog, if you go to the shop and you leave them, and then you come back 10 minutes later, it's like you've been gone for a week. Oh, my God, you're back, you're back, you're back. <laughs> Can you eat a chocolate without a dog looking at you? No, you cannot. It's like dogs are amazing. <laughs> sick. Yeah, but they're just, they're just all over mm. you. And whereas cats, you can't, you can't rely on a cat. No. I mean, and I love cats, but they, you know, they choose when they Pretty give you useless, their favours, really. right? Mm. Whereas chickens are like, yes, we'll give you what you want. But then when you're busy, the chickens look after themselves because they've got a flock and their business that they've got going on is far more important than you. So it's kind of like when you're out there, they're there. And when you're not, they're getting on with life. (laughs) So, you know, they're pretty great like that. We're speaking with Fiona Scott-Norman all about um, her brand new um, coffee table book, I guess is what you'd call it. It looks like it could sit on a coffee table, could sit in a bookshelf, could sit on your bedside table, anywhere really. But it's a a really... Possibly a good toilet book. It absolutely is. Because each profile is, you know, a, a decent read, but not, you know, just enough for one visit. Not going to keep you there for too long. And it's not too not too awkward, not going, what's going on in there? And you're going, oh, I've, you know, you're not keeping on. I've got to get to the end of the chapter. It's not like that. But lots of pictures to look at. That's right. The book is called This Chicken Life Stories of Chickens and the Australians mm-hmm. Who Love Them. And I mean, there's a whole subculture that we've sort of touched on that I fully, you know, wasn't aware existed mm. around, um, you know, protocols when you're a chicken owner, like that you don't ask how many chickens mm. someone has. What's mm. what's that all about? Why can't you ask how many yeah, there Carly, are? Yeah, what is that all about? I don't know, but I asked my neighbour Richard when I first moved in, hey, Richard, you got chickens? Yeah. How many you got? And he goes, one, too many. And he just wouldn't say. And, <laughs> and we've lived as neighbours for 12 years and he has never disclosed how many chickens. There and I have five. So I think I actually fall in the category <laughs> of uh, of people that can count them because, that, you know, they can, they're all on one perch basically yeah. when they go to sleep at night. Um, but I fell for, you know, I think the oldest pitfall in the book, which is to name one of the chickens after my partner's grandma, who I really love. Oh, yeah. And now I'm worried about this chick getting sick yes because her name is yuna and uh, we've already gone through the grief of yuna 
um, dying and I don't want to go through it again. So yeah. you, can you rename them? I'm not no. sure. And look, I mean, I, 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 it is they are emotional repositories. So, I mean, what um, Dylan was talking about before was chicken maths, which is, of course, the, the, the fact that you can pick anyone who's got more than 10 – you just don't know how many you've got. Mm. And because they, they ebb and flow and people chickens will always find you once you've got them, it's like you're part of the undercurrent. Um, and it's it's rude, actually, to ask people how many chickens they've got. Right. He didn't say that, but I got the impression yeah. I've crossed a line. Like yeah, you have. Mm. I've had so many um, hedging answers. It's been hilarious because, of course, <laughs> like, once I knew that, I'm going, okay, I've got to ask. So how many chickens have you got? It's like, oh, well, the council says I can have 13. And you're going... Hmm. Interesting. You didn't actually answer the question, did you? So there's a lot of that um, because people are amused and ashamed at the same time because it's kind of like an addiction. But but with naming, oh, it's <clears throat> the thing is, it's like entry level naming is when you let your kids have full reign and they will pretty much always call one chicken nugget. Oh, really? I've got and Hurricane, my daughter. Hurricane, is she that? Ca- she called one of the chickens Hurricane. Is that bad? I think it's pretty good. No, that's a good name. Yeah. No, that's it's a great not name. Nugget. No, yeah. but a lot of, you, there are a lot of nuggets and schnitzels out oh. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a poor choice of name for a chicken. And it t- tends to be entry level because it gets really tired yelling, nugget. And you're just kind of going, that's mean. Because, and once you start loving the chicken, which happens very quickly, then you're going, Oh, this is an awful joke. Like, it's not funny. Yeah, it's pretty grim. It's grim, right? Yeah. But you don't realise that initially because you go, that's hilarious. And it's like, no, 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 no. Um, so uh, you can name your chickens after you, – you kind of – there's so many different ways of doing it. And I've discovered, too, that if you name them after people you know, it's a bit tricky because, one, if it's if there's any kind of – undesirable or even desirable trait that the chicken has that reminds you of a friend or family member you really don't want to be explaining to them Mm. why it's just a bit awkward yeah and then also chickens do die um some of them live to be up to 15 but others just suddenly collapse in a a little foof of feathers and you're going, what happened to Marilyn? That was my first chicken who died. It was like, she was so pretty. She was a little white Australop bantam and she was named Marilyn before I got her and she was a Marilyn. And then she lived her short life like a candle in the wind and just went, poof. I was like, I didn't, what? Um, so death and illness is something that is concomitant with having chickens because they're prey animals and they're incredibly hardy and also vulnerable at the same time. Mm. When they get sick... You never, you don't know because they don't, they hide it from you. You have to be, pay so you much have attention. To, well, you do have to pay attention and we, I mean, you do get to know them and, and I can't actually tell our current mm. chickens um, apart because I haven't spent enough time watching, <gasps> but my kids all know them off by heart and... They, you know, you have to see, you know, look at the egg quality and there's lots of things. But one thing that I know is frightening for me anyway is heat waves. And I've learned that my chooks don't drink water when the water's hot. So you've got to put ice cubes in it and you've really got to look out for them and then try and, you know, get someone to change the water halfway through the day and all this sort of stuff. But we're likely to get more of these and you do address sort of climate change and chickens in this book, which I appreciated because it is a worry. Absolutely. Well, that's something that Meg also addressed because she um, she's very forward thinking uh, and is experimenting with which breeds are likely to last 
um, through um, you know increased heat because a heavier chicken doesn't cope with the heat very well and she's not happy about her chickens dying in the heat so she's looking at so basically the light of the breed so something like a leghorn is going to be much more suited to warm temperatures than a, a sussex which is a beautiful big fat bird and everyone loves a sussex but uh, as the temperatures get hotter and hotter it's just not as well suited um, so yeah there are all those kinds of considerations as well and they don't you have to provide shade like I think it's interesting like when they die and when the foxes come um, which they do foxes are assholes and I, I, I consider them like the joker you know the spree killers of the animal world they just kill 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 and you're going what the hell it's a massacre um but it's like at that point is when you become a real chicken owner, I think, because you have to go, right, I have to really take care of my girls. Like they're relying on me because mm. they seem they are independent and mm. they seem really strong, but you need to look after them. And one of them is really fox-proofing where you look after them and the yep. other is going, okay, how can I provide shade? How can I make sure they've got enough food? Like how can I keep them how can I protect them and then you realize that you're you have a lot of um responsibilities and it's really true and you can get it wrong like I know uh mm. we're probably talking too long about chicken sorry Dylan you're um huh? he you looks know. quite he's getting off the fence I reckon you're dropping <laughs> on the <laughs> you're dropping on the chicken side of the fence here I can okay. tell well. but I know there's controversy around things like you know those solar-powered door openers for chook pens. Oh, are there? Yeah, because Why? they open crack of dawn. Oh, yeah. The foxes lie in waiting for the door to open. Jeez. And so, Cunning yeah, foxes. no, they really are. They're, mm. they're incredible like that as predators, I think. Oh, but yeah. you don't know, you know, until you start talking chickens, you don't know that there's all of these kind of things that you might do to protect your chickens that are actually frowned on by mm. other chook owners. And this, uh, I suppose, comes to the question I wanted to ask around different attitudes towards chickens. Like, you know, some people I know collect rescue chickens. So when your chook stops laying, some people go, look, I don't want to eat it because it's a pet, but I don't want it anymore because it's expensive to keep them and they don't lay. And so what do you do? And there's people that will take them <laughs> and just take on your chicken and look after them. And those people I think are are remarkable because they really, they're not expecting anything from the chooks. They're just tending well, them. you know, yeah. I think I've got opinions about that. I mean, the, I think good on the rescue people. I mean, but the number of spent hens in the world is, or even in Victoria, is in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it, it's sort of like layer chickens, like Isa Browns and Highlines, are have been bred to pump out an egg every day, and then their production falls off hugely after, you know, the first year. So. Most of them, if they're especially any of that are in farms, are basically sent off to be killed at that point. And so, you know, activists and rescuers will also try and save those hens as well, mm. because they've been designed to put out so many eggs. Um, they actually end up usually with terrible reproductive issues, um, egg peritonitis. They'll have, um, you know, prolapses. They'll get tumours. It's honestly, it's the worst. So again, I keep coming back to heritage chickens because they're not. So they're not so um, engineered to put out an egg a day at the expense of their own bodies. Um, you've got to find a balance. But the thing is, my my belief, like if you've got 
look, you know, if you've got backyard chickens, you've got like half a dozen, um, which even with heritage chickens will give you plenty of eggs. Um, and then they get old. And then you go, thank you for your service. It doesn't actually cost much to keep them. Just refresh your flock, get a couple of new newbies in. Mm. Uh, but also heritage chickens will keep laying. This is the thing. It's sort of like the idea that they stop laying. It's only because you get layers and they literally run out of body. Um, it's, 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 there's such a dark side to the poultry industry. Um, and, and I think, you know, like the chickens are your friends. So uh, they give you more than eggs. And in fact, you know, a lot of people who do rescue chickens won't eat eggs. They just feed them back to the chickens so that they get the protein back. But if you think about it, um, <clears throat> and it's, I think a lot of people don't realise this, but an egg is a chicken's period. So if you think if you're having your period every day, like what a toll that would take on your body. Mm. So, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, they're beautiful. Um, so we haven't even talked about any of the people in the book. Um, but it's, I, I just want to say, it's like this chicken life. Someone said to me, it's like, oh, it's like humans of New York, but for chickens. It's very much like that. Yeah, isn't yeah. that right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, how did you decide who to profile? Because there are, oh. you know, chicken owners all over the country, but you had to, mm. you know, confine it to the amount of people you could fit in in a book of this size. Yeah. Well, it was about who we found and mm. who just kind of seemed interesting. So we just started, we kept going, and then we, when we went, okay, that's enough, then we stopped. Yeah. But, of course, there are people we've met since who we would love to include in the book or in a second book. There are people who are now going, hey, there's a book. Why wasn't I in it? And it's like, well, we didn't know you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we found people through, one, through my personal network. So, like, the first interview I did was with Nick Round, um, who is a rosecomb fancier. He's a tree changer who moved to Trentham. He's an advertising executive and he's hilarious. And he's kind of the, he was my first window into it. And of course, through him, you know, just met all these other poultry fanciers. Mm. Um, and also, that's how I come. I have rosecombs because he keeps giving me fertilized eggs and going, you know, come on, don't make me scramble them. <laughs> um, but then there's the internet. There's lots of stories because media finds stories about chickens hilarious. So there's heaps of we found people that way, like Max up in Queensland who makes chickenies and chinis, like all these chicken clothing. He's like there's a story on him every few months because everyone goes, oh, what can we have today? Let's get Max and his chicken clothing in. He's got an an empire of selling chickens and chicken clothing and chicken accessories and. He's 12. Um, you wow. know, it, so much I have to learn. <laughs> I know. It's like there are – and there's Mandy in Toowoomba who, who crochets little hats for chickens. Mm. Well, it's a very satisfying book. I have really enjoyed it. And um, this chicken life, Fiona Scott Norman is the author. Uh, the photography is gorgeous. And Alana Rose is the photographer oh, and for she, this book. Such amazing work she's done in this book. Like, oh, it's beautiful. It's incredible, really, isn't it? It's beautiful. The, the, the chook personality and their owner personality comes through and they're all in quirky little spots and, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Uh, stories of chickens and the Australians who love them. Thanks for talking at length with us, oh, Fiona. Can, I can talk about chickens for days now. Uh, so it's available at, like, bookstores. If it's not in your bookstore, ask for it, get it in. And also go, why isn't it displayed? Because it's beautiful. So some people are displaying it and others... Uh, I found it behind a pillar in a pet shop at the Dimmicks in Chapel Street, and I was outraged. Um, and it's out through Plum. 
Plum Pan Macmillan. It's an imprint of them. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, See you soon. Yes. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.